0: Now, we are in a very unfamiliar passage to many this morning, but it's actually in the middle of a story that you'll probably be very familiar with. And uh, I do think that Lewis perhaps is getting his own back today. He's been organizing the preaching series this summer, and uh, he has got me preaching Genesis 38 and the story of Tamar. But it's impossible, really, to tell Tamar's story without telling the story of Judah, and impossible to tell Judah's story without telling the story of Jacob and his 12 sons and so that is why you may well be familiar with the passages around Genesis 38 but probably not Genesis 38 itself um, which uh, does seem on first reads to be totally separated from the rest of the story but trust me it's not okay Uh, why don't we watch a video something that you're probably familiar with. So I'm hoping that you'll realise by the end of this that the portrait of that family given in the musical is really nothing like what we might see here in scripture. These pearly white teeth and this kind of shiny performance is nothing like what is going on in the chaos, the disaster of this family. Tamar's story really needs to be told within the, the setting of this very dysfunctional, destructive, family sin has been rampant in jacob's family like death sin in our culture is hidden isn't it it's softened it's sanitized oh that's a wee sin isn't it you heard that one but sin in reality is chaotic it's destructive especially in families and sin, swept and hidden under the carpet, is not going to go away. In fact, when we do that, when we let it fester like that, when we, when we keep it in our lives and we think that hiding it and keeping it hidden is solving the problem, in fact, what's really going on is it's multiplying and it's getting worse. It's building up. It's getting ready for an explosion. It's eating away at you. And we find here in Genesis 38 Jacob the dad has had favorites he's not just had a favorite has he but he's then left others isolated he's got sons who are unloved and four generations on from Abraham suddenly the the big project The family line from Abraham who is supposed to have so many children that it would turn into such a a vast nation that you couldn't count them and that they were going to be the blessing to bless the nations seems under threat. You might know the story well enough to, to know that Judah actually has three older brothers. But all of them are disqualified because of their sin. Reuben slept with his dad's concubine. Simeon and Levi murdered the Shechemites. And now in verse 1, which we're about to see, at that time Judah is off to stay at Adalim named Hira. In other words, he's off to settle with the Canaanites. And that should be a big red flag for us. Let's read verses 1 through 11 first. And what we'll do is we'll break this up into chunks to help us understand what's going on. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adalim named Hera. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Er. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brother's. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. Sin always begins in the same way, with snake-like whispers, drawing us away from God. No longer trusting God's promises or God's ways, believing that our own wisdom is somehow better qualified than the revelation that we receive from God. Israel was called out to be distinct, to be this new kingdom that God wants to establish on the earth as a way to bless the nations, to, to, to restore the ways of God. Just like the church is to bless the nations by filling the earth with Jesus' disciples. But like in the garden, Satan's whispers, did God really say eve allowed satan to question god's goodness and here again judah has allowed the same thing to happen but for judah in many ways the whispers are generational jacob this ungodly parenting that he's he's received from jacob has meant that He's departed in the ways of Jacob. As often as the case, before Judah's departure is silence. And this is something we're going to keep seeing through this passage. Where there is silence, sin is spreading. In the first of the three silences, there's a missing voice, the missing voice of a father. God's clear instructions were on the lips of Abraham. Genesis 1. Genesis 1. No. (laughs) Genesis 24, 3. With his dying breath, Abraham makes his chief household servant promise this. By the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. That's pretty clear, right? Don't marry someone from the Canaanites. Then on Isaac's lips to his son, with his dying breath, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padan Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. But where are the th- same words of the third generation? Nothing. Only favoritism, neglect, confusion. Generation four departs from the faith. Don Carson, a theologian and pastor um, from Canada, says it takes three generations to lose the gospel. In the first generation, they believe and they do all the implications of the gospel that's where they want it they want to live their lives for jesus the second generation they assume the gospel and it becomes about doing all those works the third generation walks away and that's really what we've seen here from generations two to four isn't it not every child is going to leave the church because their parents have been unfaithful Some just choose to leave and it's painful for their parents despite how faithful they've been to God and to their children. It's important that we say that. But there is a principle here that if we abandon teaching our children the ways of the Lord, they're likely to walk off. To not be diligent to teach them the ways of God. A YFC surveyed Generation Z, Christians, and they asked this question, what or who influenced the way you think about religion? 73% of them said, family. We can put on the most amazing show for kids, the best youth work ever. But in the end, the most important thing we can do is to raise our kids in the ways of God in our households. And that shouldn't just be limited to households in the sense that you have your, your parents at home, but also their spiritual parents in the church. And actually, I think we increasingly need to see the ways in which we serve our kids here at church, not just as making sure that we have something excellent for them on a Sunday, which we do, where they can learn about God and to learn his ways, but also that we would have involvement in their lives i had a bit of a wake-up call this week in that i called someone in this i won't say who they are i called someone's child in this church one of the children in this church the wrong name by text i was oh I was totally i couldn't believe it couldn't believe i'd done it but it was a wake-up call for me because i was like man how often am i praying for him that i can get his name wrong how often am i thinking of him that i can get his name wrong we need to be paying attention to the next generation. We need to be making sure that we are caring spiritually for our children, especially in a generation like this. Judah's suspicion that life was better elsewhere, away from God, begins with Jacob's failings to pass on God's goodness in his life and teaching to the next generation. So now what? I mean, look at the state of this thing. How is this kingdom project to survive? Judah is next in line. And the whole Abrahamic covenant to be f- this fruitful nation just seems so shaky, doesn't it? And it only gets worse. Judah fathers these three sons Teshua, this Canaanite woman, this Canaanite wife that he has. Verse 6, jarring statement. Judah got a wife for heir. Got a wife for her. That should be a red flag too. His firstborn and her name was Tamar. So he got a wife. Now Judah is fathering like the Canaanites. Obtaining women like property. He likely made a deal with Tamar's father who certainly didn't do his due diligence either because he gave his precious daughter to evil men. Another letdown, dad. Heir was so wicked, the first son, that God put him to death. We don't know why, but God thought he was that wicked, he needed to be put to death. Verse 7. Now, before we get to the weirdness in verse 8, bear in mind, okay, this is a patriarchal society. Huge obligation here is given for women to produce sons because they almost have no security or income without sons. They were what they would rely upon in their older age in order to survive. But it also connected to identity in an honour and shame culture. And if a husband died, the law was supposed to protect you by requiring the brother to step in and produce an heir for the widow and, and the dead brother. That's why in verse 9 it says Onan knew the child would not be his. That's the second brother. So he knew that the child wouldn't be his because it would be heir's child according to the law. And so he used Tamar for sex without the hope of the son that she would have so desperately not just wanted but needed. It was cruel and despicable. And to not produce a son for a dead brother, in effect, was to erase his memory from history. Onan was thinking purely of himself. In fact, he was thinking of his inheritance. Some of you will have had some pretty heated discussions, I'm sure, about inheritance. In Jewish culture at the time, or in culture generally at the time, and certainly amongst um, the Hebrews, it would have been divided up between the sons plus one going to the eldest son or the son of the eldest son. Still following me? So if Onan fathered a son for Tamar and his dead brother, Onan's inheritance in effect would shrink from two thirds to one quarter. So while Joseph is living in Egypt with integrity and faithfulness in, under a uh, huge amount of pressure, at home, sin is multiplying. Godliness is shrinking. Jacob and his sons have gone to sickening levels and it's nothing like the way that God has called them to live. They're so preoccupied with sex, money and power that no love, compassion, kindness, concern for the vulnerable and the poor is there. They're taking the example of the nations and the cultures around them and not God. Where God is described as loving, faithful, promise-keeping, an incredible, faithful father and a husband to Israel, here, they're behaving nothing like that. They're supposed to follow in his ways. Our culture is hardly much better. McDonald's workers across the UK Including here in Scotland, sexually assaulted often by those in charge, managers. Across the Met in London, more evidence of the sexualization of women. Institutions and structures still empowering and giving license for discrimination and abuse while disempowering women. That's not to mention the horrors. Of objectification that take place through a multi-billion dollar porn industry. Hidden sin. And sexual slavery around the world. God was so furious that he struck down Onan dead. Let that be a sign of what God thinks of these kinds of abuses. Now Judah has only one son left. But he's still too young to marry Tamar. So Tamar is sent back to her father. Now she's this innocent party here. A Canaanite woman brought in by godless Judah with little say or rights, abused by evil sons and made to make a shameful journey back to her parents' home. Surely there is no way back for Tamar or God's promise to Abraham. Without knowing the rest of the story, you would assume God's project has failed. And there is no hope for disempowered powered women like Tamar. Then there is a long pause between verses 11 and 12. And sin spreads all the more. Let me read from verse 12 down to 23. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shuah, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hera the Adalmite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that through Shelah, she had now oh, sorry, though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. Then when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, "Come now, let me sleep with you. "And what will you give me to sleep with you?" she asked. "I'll send you a young goat from my flock," he said. Will you give me some things, a pledge, until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend Adulamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the man who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Anaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the man who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute there. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a stock. After all, I did send her this young goat. But you didn't find her. There's a kind of serpentine effect that we've seen of sin. And now we're going to see its overpowering effect. Between verses 11 and 12, we have this long, long pause. And sin is multiplying all the more. And it seems Sheila, now of age to be married to Tamar, Judah doesn't do anything about it. It's as if Tamar doesn't exist to him, abandoned, shamed, insignificant and invisible. But Tamar makes a plan. The sheep shearing festival is about to begin, big holiday, huge feast, huge celebration, and all kinds of things will go on here. All kinds of Canaanite cultural practices will come together at this big festival, including sacred prostitution. Tamar knew Judah would be taking part. Now, sacred prostitution is this idea that if you were to sleep with a prostitute at this proper time in which to do it, then you would receive some kind of blessing for your flocks and for your fields. Not only are they practicing Canaanite ways, not only is Judah Going the way of the nations rather than the way of God. He is also full of lust and lacking any form of self-control. And so she thinks, knowing him, he'll probably do this. This is the plan that will work. So she waits at Inan, verse 14, which literally means opening of the eyes. Ironic. Because Tamar dresses up as a prostitute hiding her face with the veil and the payment is agreed he does not recognize her the payment is a kid a goat but because he's not walking around with a goat he has to make a pledge this is really common practice okay we're going to exchange for this this is what i'm going to pay you but it's back home so until then you can take a pledge from me what pledge would you like to take and she, very cunningly, asks for her his ID. The staff and the this signet, the this, this stamp that would be at the top of this staff, was essentially, uh, sorry, the, the staff was, was one thing, and that, that had its own like little embroidery, embroidery is definitely the wrong word, uh, carving um, on the top of it. And that would be a mark to say who he is. It would be unique. And the same thing would be happening with what's around his neck. He's got this signet, and it would, be, it would act like a stamp. So that when he needed to sign something, they wouldn't sign, they would have a stamp. Here's my signature. And so she says, I'll take your ID. And so she goes off with the ID. So he obviously wants to sort this out as soon as he can because he doesn't want to be found out. He wants this to remain hidden. And of course, she doesn't come back because she's not really a prostitute. And she's gone home with his ID. She vanishes and waits. Judah, verse 23, gives up looking. Probably because chasing the prostitute for his fake ID, or his ID, (laughs) Idea, I don't know why I said big idea, he so foolishly gave away wasn't gonna be a great look was it he wants his sin hidden swept under the carpet he is content to sin while no one else can see but sin always catches up on us if unrecognized if it's undealt with it is like a fire given more and more oxygen and fuel. One victim of sexual abuse at McDonald's said that the manager groped her and then said, it's not going to be on CCTV so don't bother complaining to anyone. Possession of power. Thinks he's getting away with it. While it's hidden, he's alright. He was probably not even bothered. Zero guilt. Well, it had no effect on him. Then we get another silence. Three months passed by. Three months of festering sin in Judah. Let me keep reading verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again there is also a blinding effect of sin. When Tamar is found to be pregnant, Judah's horrible hypocrisy is on display. She is paraded before the people, much like those two women that you might have heard about in Manipur in India that hit our news feeds this week. It happened two months ago. But they were paraded naked before they were, one of them was gang raped. And all kinds of violence has has been going on in the region, but they were weaponized, essentially. From the crowd, Judah himself says, bring her out and burn her to death. The flagrant injustice, the hypocrisy is disgusting. It just doesn't get much worse. I wonder if he is so blind to his own sin that he didn't see it. That he thinks, I'm just I'm just doing the right thing here. I need to honour my family, she needs to be punished. Tamar is ready though. Somehow she keeps her composure. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. His signet, his staff, his ID are on display. And it holds up a mirror to Judah. The events at Nahum open the eyes of Judah now. Not at the time, not while it was hidden, but when it's revealed, when it's exposed, suddenly he sees himself. I'm a horrible man. He sees himself like he's never seen himself before. His sin finally catches up with him. Like it always does. If you have a hidden sin, something that is going on behind closed doors, you may think, "I'll never catch up. I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to keep doing it, and and it'll be fine. I'm not going to tell anyone about it. It doesn't affect other people." The truth is, it will come out. It will either come out in this life, or worse, it will come out before the King of Kings. Jesus will be there before you and you'll have to give an answer. What are you going to say? Without seeing, confessing, repenting to our sin, it will only continue to multiply and cause havoc in our lives and the lives we touch. In the same way that I bet that McDonald's manager is suddenly aware of the effect of his sin as people he knows start to hear the whispers, he is the one the girl is talking about in that interview. If you are hiding sin, tell someone. Confess it out loud. Get on your knees before God. It cannot be hidden forever. It will not be hidden forever. When you read forward to Genesis 44 and 45, Judah humbly comes before Joseph in Egypt and he's willing to take the place of a slave instead of his youngest brother, Benjamin. These warring brothers, suddenly he he is able to say, I will die or I will be enslaved instead of my brother. It leads to Joseph saying, come Close to me. Do you remember what Judas said to Tamar? Come to me. What stark contrast did Judas demand? Without this exposure of his own feelings, without the vulnerability of that moment to cry out in repentance, his interest would have remained for himself. Without the confession of sin, no restoration is possible for him or for his brothers. The brothers, once warring for inheritance, are reconciled in the final weeks of his father Jacob's life. The glory is, although sin unchecked multiplies, sin humbly confessed is the first step to healing. And it leads to the multiplication of God's ways. When we confess, we can trust the Bible's promise. He, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 1.9 After a six-month or so pregnant pause between verses 26 and 27, we actually get a glimpse into how this is all going to be possible. How Judah can be restored. How Tamar can find her true significance and meaning in the eyes of God. How you and I can be forgiven for hidden sin. Verses 27 through 30. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out. And he was named Zera. Praise God, there is a counter effect to hidden sin. Sin. Must be brought into the light for us to have any hope. But there needs to be a resurrection light. There needs to be a better light than just the sunlight as we bring it out. There needs to be a light that brings healing. So where's this light coming from? Well, the birth narrative gives us some big clues here in these last verses. That red string put on to recognise the firstborn was put on by the midwife and, t- and it's tied to Zara's wrist. His name means dawning. Now he is to be the firstborn. So he's got the mark, he had the mark of the firstborn and his name means dawning and it's, it's a kind of sense in, in which he is rising above everyone else. Dawning as in I am going to I'm going to have my domain. I'm going to be this strong leader. That's why he's named Donning, Zerah. Perez, however, meaning breach, barges past him and is first to break through to be born. And here we see a God-given pattern repeated at important times throughout Scripture, throughout Israel's patriarchal line. The blessing an inheritance of the firstborn given to another. Abel, not Cain. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. Esau. Now Tamar's twins. Zerah, not Perez. But why this pattern? Because it prefigures what Christ will do for the world. Jesus is a Perez rather than a Zerah. He is not the impressive-looking one come to lord over all, but he is the one who has come and is willing to lay himself down so that others might receive their inheritance. In Matthew's gospel is a genealogy containing Zerah, who is not an ancestor it's not part of the bloodline. Why? Why is he there? Matthew feels compelled to record that Judah was the father of Perez and Zera, whose mother was Tamar. Jesus is a Perez rather than a Zerah. He is not the dawning of the impressive older brother rising above everyone else. He isn't even conceived in the ordinary rising of human flesh, but only through the Lord who bursts forth, the God of breakthrough ultimately Jesus has come so that we can like Paul says in Romans 8 be heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ Jesus has come and he has broken in so that the abusing powers of someone like Judah would not have their way but Foreigners like Tamar, without any rights, would be given keys to the kingdom. They would be able to come into the kingdom of God freely and know God. Jesus has come to be the blessing that Abraham was promised, that Isaac was promised, that Jacob was promised. And in him, everyone can come into the kingdom of God as first sons. As the ones who receive the full inheritance, he comes and he shares it with us. And he does it humbly by laying himself down and dying on the cross in our place. And so when Simeon comes, remember Simeon in Luke? You hear about him at Christmas sometimes? And he lifts this baby up in the temple. Let me just read out the account. It says this. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying sovereign Lord as you have promised you may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon got it have you got it have you seen that this is the baby we needed This is the firstborn that everyone needed, that Tamar needed, that Judah needed, that Jacob and all his sons needed, that Joseph needed, that even the Egyptians needed, that the Canaanites needed, that you and I needed. Whether you are someone who has hidden sin in your life and you need to confess it and get it out there and have yourself face down before Jesus to find his forgiveness and be welcomed in. Or, you are someone like Tamar who has been abused by sinful people. Who have reigned over you in a way that is not godly and good. Who have abused you. You need to hear this. Jesus has come to destroy the whole system so that In Him, you have your freedom and your joy and your life. You do not have to work it out through the system. You can be free right now. Jesus has come not just to remove the sins that we have committed, but the sins that have been committed against us, to cleanse us, to make us holy, to wrap us in a holy veil. I don't mean veil. (laughs) In a holy, help me, like a blanket. Shaw, let's go. Yes, Shaw, thank you. Much better. Jesus has come for you. And in Matthew 1, Tamar is named in the genealogy alongside Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Why? Because these women who were heard. In scandalous whispers around Israel, in the end, are the ones who God uses to bring salvation to the world. Praise God for his ways. We're going to go into a time of communion together. And I really want to encourage you to especially think, is there, is there hidden sin in my life? Or is there something that has been done against me or is being done against me that I don't believe Jesus has the power to break? I just encourage you right now, Jesus does have the power to break it. And to confess sin, but also to get other, there is a time where we need to be able to get other sin out there, get it exposed. To speak to the right people who can do something about it. But also now, just to get it out before Jesus. Call it out for it, for what it is. It's an injustice, and it shouldn't be being done against you. When we come to the table, we are reminded that through his blood, all of our sin, sinned by us and against us, has been removed. It's as far as the east is from the west, because he The firstborn son has come and died in our place and he rose again from the dead and he has given us new life and new inheritance that lasts forever, an everlasting kingdom.